Every birth, every birth is a fresh start. Every birth is the entrance of something new. Um, I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 1, where we will be introduced to Jesus and his coming. It will be a difficult story. It will be a story that in many ways is rated PG or PG-13. It begins with a genealogy, and quite often we just kind of run our eyes past that saying unpronounceable words. But to the first readers of the Gospel of Matthew, they read this and they knew the stories behind the people. And so this morning, what I'm going to do is present to you how every birth was this sense of a fresh start, an entrance of something new, only to see it dashed and broken. Now, in order to do that, I'm going to show you a few pictures here. Every birth is a, a fresh start, the entrance of something new. This was... Carol and me 40 years ago. We're, we were in Jerusalem at the time. You can tell we weren't very wealthy by the Christmas decorations at our tree. Carol was expecting a baby. Um, and Christmas trees were rare. Uh, in the decades after the life of Jesus, the Romans in a couple of different wars practically got rid of all of the trees in the region. And so even today, every tree is precious. And so to get a tree was pretty magnificent for us. And we managed to score one from a very dear Palestinian friend. Uh, look how happy we are. 40 years ago, exactly today, almost to the hour, I would guess, Carol and I walked from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. And uh, as we were walking on the road, which was a road that had been traveled by the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, it's a great high, patriarchal highway, it's called. Off on the side of the road, there was a donkey. I said, it's a perfect photo opportunity. And so I had Carol stand in the field and had her, took her picture with this donkey. Uh, you'll have to uh, take it by faith, some of you younger ones, but there used to not be uh, the capacity to take pictures on your phone. In fact, you didn't have a phone. You had what was called a camera where you took slides. And uh, this slide was used so much in a hot slide projector that you can see that it's deteriorated quite a bit. Uh, I've had it digitized for you today. Um, my wife often tells me that when I tell stories about our, me or our family, I never tell the end. I just kind of illustrate it and then leave it hanging. And you're all wondering what happened. Well, we did have a baby. <clears throat> um, this is my son, Joel, who's with us today. Um, and I'm wearing the same sweater. <clears throat> I'm doing that just to prove to you that that guy and this guy are the same guy. Because 
That would be a matter of faith, thinking that, right? Yeah. And there's my precious wife, Carol, holding her, her baby. Something new 40 years ago. With the birth of every child, there is a sense of hope and newness only to see that hope in some way get broken. And never is that truer than in the genealogy of Jesus because at every birth, there was this sense of hope that maybe that one would bring in the kingdom of God. Uh, I'm gonna be a little Mr. Rogers-like right now. Um, and, in the, and, and, and with each person who trots across the stage of biblical history here in Matthew chapter one, you see this hope springing. Maybe they'll bring in the kingdom only to go, nope. Maybe this one, nope. Maybe this one, nope. Maybe this one, nope. And we'll point out what the purpose of that is in just a moment. For now, I want you to think about how Jesus' family was a legacy of broken promises and unfulfilled dreams. Broken promises and unfulfilled dreams. The first person that we run into in Matthew chapter 1, verse 2, is Abraham. Abraham was a liar. He told two different kings that his wife wasn't really his wife, but his sister. It was worse than that, though, because his wife, when they couldn't have a child, said, hey, have the child of hope, of blessing, come through our servant girl, Hagar. And they did that, and Hagar had a baby. And did you know that today, today, in Bethlehem, there is no celebration of Jesus today? You want to know why? Ultimately, it traces back to the fact that there is conflict between the child of Abraham born from Hagar and the child of Abraham born later from Sarah. Because of that, we still see conflict in the world. Abraham, the hope only to be dashed. His son Isaac played family favorites, so you had his two sons, twin sons born, and, and his, he liked the younger one, Jacob, and his wife, Rebecca, liked the older one, Esau, and there was such conflict that even last week we saw in Malachi how the Edomites, the, the descendants of Esau, were lifelong, decades long, generations long, enemies of Israel and Judah. And then as for Jacob, the deceit and the scheming and the sibling rivalry that he exhibited, as we have hold him up, he's gonna bring in the kingdom of God? No way, that's not gonna happen. In verse three, we're introduced to Judah, the son of Jacob, and Judah is described as the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. This is where it gets a little PG-13 here. Judah had a son named, had three boys. The first one was named Ur, and he was wicked. The Bible says, so God put him to death. And then, as part of the whole 
cultural scheme of how you have children, it was the responsibility of the next son to marry the widow in order to carry the family line, but the second son, Onan, refused to have a son, and so God put him to death too. The next boy, Shelah, says, you know what? I'm out of this story. I'm not going to marry her. She's bad news. And so there Tamar was without husband and without children. And um, so Tamar decided to take matters into her own hands. She dressed up as a prostitute, a Canaanite prostitute, stood by the road where she knew her father-in-law Judah would be walking by because she had disguised herself. Uh, He didn't know it was her. And so then he entered into an exchange for her services and he didn't have any money with him and so he left his, um, his, his seal and his staff cord with her and says, present them later and I'll pay you. And so then uh, everything's done, they can't find her and he goes, well, well, whatever, it's fine. Later, Tamar is found to be with child and Jacob is outraged. He's outraged at her immorality and he says, let's put her to death. And Tamar says, that's fine. I just want you to know I've been made pregnant by the man who gave me these and presents the seal and the, and the staff cord, the, the, the ancient equivalent of a visa card and a driver's license, right? I, dun, 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 right? And so Judah, no hope for the kingdom of God there. Tamar, no hope there. Uh, how about verse 5? Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. Rahab was a Canaanite prostitute who believed the message of the spies and trusted in, in the true God and was rescued from Jericho. Ruth is described there in verse 5. An unclean Moabite foreigner whose life was filled with sadness. In order to hear this story, you got to go back to her father-in-law, whose name was My God is King. That's a nice name, right? This whole idea of the anticipation of a king that would bring in a kingdom. My God is King is living in the house of bread. Bethlehem, that's the name, what the name Bethlehem means. He's living in the house of bread. Believe it or not, there's a famine in the house of bread. They got no bread in the house of bread. And so my God is king, leaves with his wife, whose name means pleasant, and they got two boys. Boy, these names are characters. One of them's named Sickly, and the other one's named Pining Away. How much hope do you have for those two, right? So they get over there into Moab, and my God is king, dies. And Sickly and Pining Away marry two Moabite women. One of them is Ruth. And then no surprise, sickly dies, and so does pining away. And so then Naomi says, hey, I hear there's bread back in the house of bread. I'm going back home. And the two uh, widows, her daughters-in-law, decide to go with her, but in the end, only one of them does, Ruth. And Ruth goes back to the house of bread and in a wonderful romance meets Boaz. And the two of them get married and become a part of this line of broken promises and unfulfilled dreams. It turns out then, of course, that uh, 
Ruth is the mother of Obed, who's the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. So David is the great-grandson of Ruth. What's, sad, what's really interesting here is now with David, you're thinking, okay, now we're on to something here. Here's a guy who waited, he did all the right things with Saul and that whole line got messed up and broken and so now God's gonna start over and he's gonna make an eternal covenant. There's all these covenant promises and then with all of the hope of an eternal kingdom being established under David's rule, David commits adultery and tries to cover it up with a murder a legacy of broken promises and unfulfilled dreams. You know, each king then that's listed here then carries a question and a hope. The question is, uh, is this going to bring in the kingdom of God? And the hope is, maybe they will. Maybe this is the moment where it will happen. And so we have Solomon. By the way, we think of him as a wise person. And actually, when he was young, everybody thought, the whole opinion of the whole country was, this guy is really slow. That's why he prays for wisdom, and God gives him divine wisdom. In fact, I love his Hebrew name because his Hebrew name kind of describes what he was like. It means his peace, but I kind of like how it feels in English. His name is Shlomo. Shlomo. Shlomo, and God exalts him and gives him a kingdom that is beyond description in riches and glory, and people come from all over, and there's wonderful things that happen, but guess what happens in the process? It goes to his head, and he ends up with 700 wives and 300 concubines. Not an easy house to hold on to, is it? And he does that because he's making treaties with all the nations around him. Trade relationships, building up wealth and all of that. But it is, in the end, broken promise. An unfulfilled dream. His son Rehoboam raised taxes, engaged in male prostitution. His son Abijah did the same there in verse 7. In verse 8... We're introduced to a guy named Asaph or Asa. He physically abused people. He had a foot disease and the Bible records that he consulted the doctors but he refused to consult the Lord. He trusted in the king of Aram, not the Lord, to solve his political problems. His son Jehoshaphat engaged in unholy alliances and the Lord destroyed his naval fleet and he's described as a good king. By the way, being mostly good is like being mostly free of COVID, right? I mean, yeah, good, but by what definition? Not in the sense of the fulfillment of all the years met in him, not in the glorious kingdom of God being established through him. Then we're introduced to Joram. We're in verse 8 again. He killed all his brothers so there'd be no rivals. Kind of a nice guy, huh? 
He died a horrible death, the scripture records, that his insides came out after two years of pain. At this point, we have a gap because the word father of probably means more like a, the progenitor of, so there's some gaps in, this, uh, in these genealogies. So we, we, Matthew skips Joash and Amaziah. I'll suggest a reason for that a little later. There's another gap in verse 10 as well. But in verse nine, we're introduced to Uzziah, who was a good king but filled with pride. He tried to take on the priest's work in the temple. Instead of having the priests do it, he decided as king it was his job. So he's thinking he's going to alone bring in the glorious kingdom of God as both the priest and the king. And when he starts doing temple stuff, the Lord strikes him down with leprosy. Jotham is described as a good king, but he didn't lead his people like his own child because we are introduced to this in verse 9, Ahaz who sacrificed his sons. He worshiped Damascus's gods. He made treaties with the enemies of the Lord and he actually shut down the worship in the temple. Verse 10, Hezekiah grew proud. Here he was, a good king, and everybody's thinking, maybe he's, you know, he did a revival, wonderful things going on. And then the prophet says to him, yeah, it's time for you to die. And Hezekiah goes, no, 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 no. And he begs the Lord over and over, give me more years. And the Lord says, okay, I'll give you 15 more years. And in that 15-year period of time, his heart grew proud and he did not respond to the kindness shown him. And the son that was born to him in that 15-year period of time is Manasseh, there in verse 10, who engaged in witchcraft, demons, divination, child sacrifice, bloody purges. He sacrificed his own son and in 2 Kings 23 we read, the Lord refused to turn from his burning wrath after this guy. In other words, after Manasseh, though there were more kings, there was no hope for Judah because of Manasseh's sins. The next one is Amos or Amon, he was just like his father with one exception. The scripture in the Old Testament records that Manasseh, at the very end of his life, repented of all of his sins. Isn't that amazing? That right at the end of your life, you can say, oh God, forgive me, and he's so gracious and good. He does it, and he forgave him of his sins, but his son, this Amos, he refused to repent. The next guy is Josiah. Josiah was a good king, but he died in battle because he disregarded a sign from God not to go into battle. So every one of these trotted off this onto the stage of, of biblical history with the hopes that all of God's glory and kingdom might come through them and the answer is no, 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 no. A legacy of broken promises and unfulfilled dreams. And we come to verse 11, this Jeconiah, the last true king of Judah. And he was really the only one to succeed. You know what he succeeded in? After three months and 10 days of reigning as king of Judah, he succeeded in surrendering to the Babylonians. 
Second Chronicles 36 describes this entire legacy of the history of Israel this way. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. Let those two words settle on you, no remedy. Because in order to understand the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you must first understand this. There is no remedy. There's no hope for us. On our own, we cannot bring in the kingdom of God. We cannot make our life better. We cannot do things that are going to bring peace and fulfillment. The hopes and fears of all the years cannot be met in our discipline or our trying hard. There is no remedy. In order to understand the good news, you have to understand the bad news. And the bad news is we got no chance. So, Let's think about some lessons learned from Jesus' family tree. It tells us, first of all, of the wonderful glory of the virgin birth of Jesus. Look at verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as she considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. The longing expectation of the kingdom of God is met in Jesus Christ, who is not a true genetic son of Jeconiah by birth because that would have been impossible because of a curse placed on him in Jeremiah chapter 22. But instead, by adoption through Joseph, inherits the kingly line in Jesus, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. There was a prophecy at the time of Ahaz, described there in verse 9, who was such a wicked king, the prophet Isaiah, the Lord gave a prophecy through Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 7. And look at verses 22 and 23 where you see this prophecy. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. You see, the reason why every one of these guys failed is because in order to succeed, you had to be God. That's the only remedy. The only remedy. And so, Jesus Christ, fully divine, humbled himself to take on human flesh. Truly human. This 
is how we know we have hope. Because there's one, one who was born differently. Truly human, truly God. Now a second lesson we should learn from this story is that if this family is a legacy of broken promises and uh, unfulfilled dreams, how much more are ours, right? Ours are as well. And if God can use this family, he can use your family. Did you know that? In all of its brokenness, he can use your family. There's hope. There's hope in Jesus Christ for every bit of brokenness. I think of my own family and how there's just such a long story of brokenness and pain and difficulty and at an early age my father found in Christ all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And as a result of that the entire trajectory of our family was altered because of what Jesus can do. He can use you. He can use your family. This is the hope of the gospel that no matter how much it's been messed up and broken, no matter where we are, Jesus Christ can redeem it because he's God and he's the king the cynicism of our time, and do we not live in a cynical age? You know, some of us are cynical over one side of the political spectrum, others of us are cynical over the other side of the political spectrum. Some of us are cynical about economic situations, some of us are cynical about world and global situations. Some of us are cynical about specific issues that particularly travail us, and we can be cynical about so many things, but the cynicism of our age must give way to the Lord of glory. How is it that it's put? He rules the world with truth and grace. The grand design of the history of Israel is to prove that God alone is qualified to build his kingdom. The only way the kingdom of God is gonna be built is if God builds it. So the only way the kingdom of God comes to earth is if God becomes a man, and he did. When Jesus came as the God-man, the first words that the Gospel of Mark records coming out of the mouth of Jesus are these, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the good news. You see, in thinking about this genealogy, don't we also hear Jesus' words where he says, the time is fulfilled, it's here, the kingdom of God is at hand, I'm the king, (laughs) repent. Believe this good news. This king, King Jesus, is the true son of David. I mentioned to you that there's a couple of spots where Matthew skips some generations. I want to explain a little bit about that. There's a hint of it in verse 17. 
All the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Well, what's helpful to us is to know that Hebrew letters correspond to numbers. And the word 14 is also the same as David. It's the word David. So the generations from Abraham to David were David. From David to the deportation to Babylon, David. From the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, David. Who is the true son of David? Jesus Christ, born of a virgin in Bethlehem in Judea. This king is the true son of David. Now the question for you. Will you prepare him room? The carol goes, let every heart prepare him room. Will you prepare him room? Look at verse 20. But as Joseph considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And then verse 21 she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, means Savior, Deliverer, for he will save his people from their sins. That legacy of brokenness, you call this one the Deliverer, because he will save his people from their sins. Now we got to know who are his people? Well, first of all, let's understand it in context. It's describing the people who are the legacy of this genealogy. Jesus came to the Jews to offer the kingdom of God. And he will yet bring in the kingdom of God to the Jews. He will do that. But his people, that's a phrase that means more than just the Jewish people, dear ones. His people, defined in the New Testament, are people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation who will call on the name of the Lord Jesus. Everyone who puts their faith in him. Everyone who asks them, Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sin by what you did at the cross. I trust what you did for me to pay for my sin. I believe you rose from the dead and so I believe you will come in your kingdom. I trust you. And if you've done that, you are part of his people here. You will call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. This message is to the peoples of the earth, to all people everywhere. The light has come, the savior of the world is here. And there's a hymn that I wanna share with you, the words that describe the glory and majesty of Jesus as king. Jesus, the name, you will call his name Jesus. Jesus, the name, high over all, in hell or earth or sky, Angels and men before it fall, and devils fear and fly. 
Jesus, the name to sinners dear, the name to sinners given, he scatters all their guilty fear and turns their hell to heaven. Do you want your hell turned to heaven? Turn to Jesus. Oh, that the world might taste and see the riches of his grace, the arms of love that compass me, the same arms that encompass every believer in Jesus, they would encompass the entire world who would believe. Jesus, the prisoner's fetters breaks and bruises Satan's head. Power into strengthless souls, it speaks, and life into the dead. Feeling powerless before the challenges that life brings you? Jesus pours power into strengthless souls. And all people are described in the Bible apart from Christ as spiritually dead and God through Christ brings spiritual life. Thee I shall constantly proclaim though earth and hell oppose, bold to confess thy glorious name before a world of foes. This is why we commission people like Jim and Susan to proclaim to all the earth the glories of King Jesus. His only righteousness I show, his saving truth proclaimed, tis all my business here below to cry, behold the Lamb. The last verse is about dying, which happens to one out of one of us. Happy, happy, if with my latest breath I may but gasp his name, preach him to all and cry in death, Behold, behold the Lamb. Now some of you may be a bit skeptical, thinking, yeah, this is just a sociologically defined white man's religion with all of the misogyny associated with it. May I offer to you an alternative opinion that this is true truth given to the entire world for all the world to embrace for every person everywhere to look to Jesus and find in him all the treasures of wisdom and of knowledge. And as a demonstration of that, I want to show you a video of a combined choir from Bangalore, India, of people, believe it or not, standing in a Scottish Presbyterian church, singing the song that you, we've just read through. And I hope that as you see their faces and the joy in their hearts, you will recognize that this isn't just true for Bloomington Normal, Illinois. This is true for the whole world. For everyone everywhere who would trust in Jesus, the hopelessness of no remedy is now met in the King of Kings. Jesus.
people who came from a heritage of millions of gods and the worship of demons and the gospel changed them. You will call his name Jesus for he will save his people everywhere from their sins. As we pray, those of you who know Jesus as your Savior, would you thank the Lord for his sovereign plan to save us from our sins? This is a, this is a design here that was born in eternity past to save us. Let us worship and thank the Lord for that. And then, if you've never put your faith in Jesus, I want to invite you to trust him as your savior. To believe that what he did at the cross forgives you of your sin. To believe in his resurrection from the dead and so that means you too will rise from the dead. Some of you may be thinking, yeah, that's a good thing, but I'll do it later. I'll do it later. Why not now? Why not now? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so blessed by the eternal plan that you worked in Christ, sending him to the cross and raising him from the dead. His name is precious to us. It is a name high over all in hell or earth or sky. Angels and men before it fall and devils fear and fly from it. And we who believe in you, Jesus, want to worship and thank you now. And know, oh God, would you be pleased to bring faith to people who've never trusted Christ. Perhaps there's one who's, for whom this is brand new. Lord, help them to believe. Perhaps there are others who've grown up in a Christian home and have been taught all this stuff and they have a cynicism about it and they just think, yeah, yeah, that's... Yeah. Lord, awaken them from their cynicism to the joy of knowing you and the glories of your eternal kingdom to come. Open their eyes, Lord, we pray. And for the person who perhaps is somewhere in the middle, not exactly opposed, but not exactly ready to run into the arms of Christ, I, I pray that you would right now in this moment open their eyes to see that this is a necessity. It's not an option. This is not an, life is not an elective course. We must trust Christ. And so Lord, I pray that you would do your work of grace there. We pray all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.